Welcome to The Happy Wanderer. Every week, five of us from different backgrounds get together to discuss some of the most pressing, interesting topics in our adult world, or as kids would, in unexpected, spontaneous, open-ended ways. We hope that by cultivating this lost art of wandering within ourselves, we'll discover opportunities to connect with, understand, and support kids in more meaningful ways in this time of immense change. To join us every week and get a supplementary email with additional resources for the episode, sign up for our newsletter at happywandererpodcast.com. Follow and chat with us on Twitter at the underscore wonderment. Start the exploring with your kids with creative activities on these topics at thewonderment.com. And follow us to get mini episodes throughout the week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Dogcatcher, and other top podcasting sites. And now, let's start the wandering. Hi, and welcome to The Happy Wanderer. I'm Amy uh, Schaefer, a writer, creative director, and... Did you just forget your last name? <laughs> <laughs> no, well... It's been one of those weeks. You started rather professionally before that, though. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good intro. My, I'm trying. Some, I'm trying something new. Yeah, new energy. Yeah. So much for that. We'll give you notes so after. much for that. Yeah. Well, and I'm a little bit hoarse this week, so if you mistakenly think you're listening to Miley Cyrus, just keep thinking that. I will. I'm going to keep <laughs> thinking of that. I'm Matt. Um, I am a teacher. I have been a school director, and now the education fellow for the Wonderment, and. Um, yeah, I'm going to imagine that I'm talking to Miley Cyrus all day on this podcast. It's going to be interesting. Let's see how that goes. I'm going to try it on for size. Uh, I'm Brian, and I am. It used to be in, in politics and government, and now working in the nonprofit space. I have a general interest in the future of our planet, and so I do like kids, and now I'm working. Uh, to, that was a very end, so. That was a very interesting end, so. Well, <laughs> like. <laughs> also, just a general interest? like Yeah, I mean. It's yeah, pretty... I guess that is kind of becoming all a passion point. Yeah. It's, you're having to get a little clearer on it. <laughs> if it's oh. not, you know, it's just like going right past you. So, okay. you know, I'm, I'm having a general interest. <laughs> and um, Growing to concern. Yeah, what's going? I, uh, I'm Joy Pogorny, and I have made a career of my interest in kids. and More specified interests. Yes, very specified, specifically in um, community management, social media, customer service regarding kids and their parents and that sort of thing. And just happy to be here this week. Yeah, and the thing that kind of brings us all around the table together is um, that exactly that care. We all had the opportunity to work with kids in various uh, environments and with various purposes and are currently engaged on a, a project called The Wonderment that brings all those things together. Um and every week we go out and just kind of see what we find in, on the internet, on, uh, in all kinds of different sources, bring it all together and look at what we feel like um, we can glean from it in terms of a theme. And so every, it's, it's really interesting to observe as we kind of wander through all this information every week. And uh, some weeks are weirder than others. And I, this one had a very interesting kind of angle to it, but I felt like a lot of what we were bringing back uh, reflected things, whether they were physical things or ideas or whatever that linger or that, you know, in, in positive and potentially negative ways that tie us to the way we've done things in the past. And so the theme this week that we brought it around is this, this idea of artifacts. And I wanted to put it out to the group of um, if they if you guys found anything in your um, in your journeys that 
brought that to you in an interesting way. I would say probably one of my more interesting ones and weird ones, hence why, um, was this, uh, this post from Chart Attack that someone just uploaded their complete collection of Kmart in-store background music. And it's pretty great because if you grew up as a child in Kmart in the period of time that this is uh, – this went from this guy's tapes uh, went from about 1989 to 1993. Um, How do you get tapes of those, by the way? So I will tell <laughs> That's you. That's an interesting story. That's an interesting story. So he um, was one of the people that was responsible for putting on the the background music tapes. So it used to be obviously through cassette tapes, and they'd get a new one um, every month, and and then basically he was supposed to throw it away after that month, but then he just kept all of them. <laughs> So if you go and you look at all, which I thought was interesting Paris too, of listening like, pleasure. <laughs> well, I might need this later. No, he's a very forward-thinking individual. <laughs> hey, listen, I got this for free. Sooner or later, this is going to be interesting to people. But I actually thought that was an interesting aspect of it, which was the fact that this is such an arcane, random bit of ephemera that has persisted through the ages by some weird fluke chance of someone not doing what they were supposed to do and throwing it away, um, and then uploading it to like the advent of the internet and then the fact that we all have access to it now. Um, and listening to it, I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is, it like transports you. And I mean, I, and and then I got in a conversation with, you know, with, with Matt about the random, uh, shopping experiences of your childhood and the things that you kind of like associate with, um, and that, it's kind of sad if that's, I guess that's the artifact. That, <laughs> this is one of those artifacts that would actually represent the period of time that I've inhabited. But, um, but I think that the, that those kind of things can bring, they do kind of bring us, they're a reflection of the humanity or the, or the experience that a group of people had together at a period of time. And I, I, at, on the one hand, part of me is just like, Oh, what does this say about us? Like, it's so, it's it's like it's Muzak in like the with advertisements thrown. <laughs> well, so it's like it's the bottom of the bottom. And yet it was clearly formative because it, it actually takes me back to that time. So anyway, it kind of threw me in a little bit of an existential, uh, funny ex- existential moment to, to see that show up this well, week. And it's interesting because I think that um – and we kind of talked about this. Um, I don't know if it was last episode or the episode before, but um, about kind of how our association with smells um, kind of uh, bring back as a trigger uh, your memory of like what you were experiencing. There was a, a guy that, in a very similar fashion, and this was I can't even reference this because I can't remember where I saw this, but he uploaded the jingle intro and outro. Um, music from radio stations in a local area, like from a city that I grew up in. And so I I clicked on it. It was crazy because like when you, when I heard these jingles, because my dad, he, he worked in radio. And so we would always have, you know, the radio station that he worked at on his radio when we were driving anywhere. And it was interesting to see how, like you said, Amy, like we, we have like kind of a shared experience. Like even though, like the one common point was this this jingle. We all have our own experiences that come along with that that we can be able to recall, which are completely unique to us, but yet we still feel this commonality through this one, you know, kind of repeated point. And it's it's just interesting 
like um, that somebody would go to that much effort to retrieve those, let alone put them up. But it does say something that they did it and that it was actually really compelling. And the fact that like I clicked on it and I listened to it for like 15 minutes because it just like went from like 1980 to, you know, 1998 and, you know, just like the variation of them, just like, oh my gosh, I totally remember when, when it was like that. Well, and it kind of speaks to the thing that I guess is maybe intriguing me this week and not the only thing, but the idea that that came from an era where experiences and particularly in our, in childhood were centralized to where enough people had shared, you know, access to something that became an art, you know, an artifact of that period of time that, that the, the reintroduction of that or the re-exposure to that means something different than it would if it was just a random thing that, that other people couldn't relate to you through, if that makes sense. And if you look at like cultures throughout time, um, you know, the, the artifacts that we find were things that everybody used in relatively similar ways, you know, and now we're in a period of time that the whole reason why we could even find this stuff or be re-exposed to it is because we have endless amounts of, of bandwidth to, to have endless amounts of varied experiences. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about with kids growing up now, where it's like, there's far fewer, not to say they don't exist and the ones that do exist are actually concentrated in even fewer, you know, avenues, but there's just not the same we have a very much, we have a much more fractured in, in good and bad ways, I guess, um, cultural experience. So it's just, it's interesting to think that there may not, that may not persist in that way. Yeah, there may not be things that kids have familiarity with that everybody knows. Anymore. Well, cause we're making so much throwaway stuff. I mean, who made the jingle and what, how long did they think it was really going to be used? And they, when they made the jingle in the eighties, they had no idea that we were going to have a digital archive of every single thing or <laughs> that that was a possibility. But it, it makes it just makes me want to contrast. I don't know what it all means, but it makes me want to contrast that with um, something that I was looking at from Atlas Obscura this week. Which, by the way, Atlas Obscura it's is going best. crazy. They are now publishing articles about every interesting thing in the world, <laughs> every single <laughs> every one. single day. So, but this one um, kind of relates in a physical way. Uh, you know, thinking about the digital archives and going on a journey back through time through these sounds and everything. But this story is about um, a bunch of teenagers in a really backwards, rundown neighborhood in Naples, Italy. By backwards and rundown, I mean like decisions made 500 years ago cut them off from the city center. You know, like <laughs> they have been backwards for longer than anything <laughs> has been on this continent. And um, that's not true. But <laughs> just the stuff that's like existing still. <laughs> yeah, true. Just the stuff that people didn't destroy when they showed up. Okay. Well, <laughs> we won't get into that conversation. <laughs> the point is underneath their city, they have a several hundred years of catacombs that are just art of just layers of, artifacts of people, the way that people lived, what was important to them, and it was all forgotten. And it was completely closed off and, and literally inaccessible and unexplored. Um, and so the entrance to these catacombs are literally under the altar in a small church, <laughs> which has got to be the coolest. Yeah, that's that's like <laughs> pretty dream, sure dream every childhood. premise of Dan Brown. <laughs> yeah, ever. And so these kids in this poor neighborhood just decided, well, let's make something of this. This is clearly an asset, something that we want to explore as part of our heritage. Let's show people. And so they now guide. They they explored it, have mapped most of it. And they lead guided tours through the catacombs, and now they've actually started to build more amenities above ground and attract people to this neighborhood. And as teenagers, it was first 
um, conceived of as an enterprise by five teenagers, and then they went and got permission from the Pope. So again, every aspect of the story <laughs> is the most awesome thing you've ever heard. But uh, they're leading now, the teenagers are now leading people into the journey through the artifacts, the literal catacombs of the past, and finding bones and religious relics and all these kinds of things. And I wonder, um, you know, when those catacombs were made, what was the purpose there? Clearly was more purpose built, built and special than someone who recorded the Kmart tape. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like if you're thinking, thinking about being a kid now, yeah, it turns out it's kids not as cool. in 500 years, what are they going to be exploring from us? You know? Well, I was thinking about the, Hopefully uh, this podcast. Yeah. They will hear Are this. Are you listening, they kids? Yes. For the ghost of your past. This is right on target to kids. It's better than Dan yeah. Brown, isn't it? Exactly. And Dan Brown's right in the kid demographic, too. Also, Miley so. Cyrus is on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> She's pulling our... Well, we, we need to call her Hannah Montana. Oh, no, this Get that kid. No, she's on the voice now with Adam. Levine. Yeah, she really looked like left that alone. That was like a long time ago. Yeah, I'm just that saying. Was so if, long ago. I just did vocal fry for the kids. <laughs> a journey through vocal fry was <laughs> Um. So my uh my artifact article that I was thinking about is um a little less esoteric um and more kind of current in the way that I'm thinking about artifacts. In that, um, it was uh, what is work-life balance look like at a company that's 100% retention with their mothers. Mm. And and I thought artifact in the term of like cultural artifact and the fact that there's a lot of people pushing for work-life balance and flex time and respecting family leave and that sort of thing and bringing that up as even like a political point of view. Um, but then when you actually get down to brass tacks in HR departments, you have the artifacts mm. of our old culture where um, it's a it's a drain. I can't remember what Trump said. It was like an inconvenience to the employer. Well, for, even the term human resources. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> artifact of something else. But they were just saying like, you know, like um, half our employees are women and they have babies sometimes. So <laughs> we'd like them to stay at our company because we wanted them to originally join our company. And so we're just going to come at this from a different way and we're just going to get rid of that artifact and just kind of come at the paradigm from another angle. And it's, and it works because all of their mothers stay. Um, and that's not the reason that they leave. So well, I think that's an interesting, I mean, that really is this, what, what, what things when preserved provide a richness to ongoing experience because you can draw on what it, it represents from the past and what things um, really are kind of a hindrance because, and I think that that's an interesting, you know, a little bit of the connotation with the word artifact because it can be used in a few different ways. Sometimes, you know, representing anything from, you know, a museum artifact to an evidence of something, an evidence of a, of, a, of learning, you know, in the education space, it's used that way to something that's outdated and really should be kind of, you know, left behind and, and jettisoned and just hasn't been, just hasn't been observed in a long time or questioned. And I think that that's where we really are. Um, we're in an interesting time of being able to consider that in its full spectrum, where I think that that's, you know, because of how much access we have to, to everything, um, it, it does make it, 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 it makes it, a, it makes it a question. It makes it a conversation in which we can question what the value of those things are yeah, in I think, our culture. I think along those lines, I think 
my assumption, and because it's my assumption, I assume that about everybody. But that <laughs> it's a good these, habit. The cultural artifacts now are by nature ephemeral. Mm. And and because we're noticing things change, like what you mentioned, Joy, we, we've experienced rapid social change. And so we see cultural artifacts and we've learned to discard them and become some of us relatively comfortable with that or excited about it even. But so the ephemeral nature of that, it reminds me of this um, a piece in Hyperallergenic, which is a, um, uh, they cover the arts um, across the country. And it's talking about James Turrell's perceptual cell installations and museums. And these consist entirely of ambient sound and color. And all you do is go and experience ambient sound and color for a moment. But you think about that existing in an art museum as an artifact. You know, it's, it is the most ephemeral thing, but the writer... And yet sometimes the most moving. Yeah. I mean, James Turrell's work really is, it has that quality because it plays with that. Well, you can hear that in the voice of the writer. She um, ends the piece basically saying, well, let me quote it. Um, it says, through a combination of light and sound... For a few moments at least, the work can strip you of all the typical assurances of selfhood, of what I think make me my own special person, and in that moment I suppose glimpsed something that felt almost infinite, the totality of our collective experience as the human species. So it gets there. They kind of left <laughs> left a lingering feeling behind, you know, a nagging itch of some sort. But no artifact, mm. you know. The thing is a machine of some sort, but so yeah, the ephemeral nature of things maybe gets to something that you're through there. Well, I think, I mean, going back to Alice Obscura, um, because why not? Because why not? <laughs> um, one of the articles that I found this week that I felt like kind of had that same, um, maybe a little bit of that juxtaposition of what, what, what you do with space is, is interesting that we're starting to question what that is, um, kind of can consist of. And this article was the inside the New York public library's last secret apartments. And basically, again, the best thing again, ever. Yeah, if, I mean, it's, if I could do anything, <laughs> anytime, I would want to live in the New York City Public Library. I mean, it's like it's from the mixed-up files of Basil yeah. Frankweiler. I mean, yeah. that's like what I imagine, but that's like a kid, just you know, fantasy artifact. This, yeah, <laughs> but these, um, so the the Carnegie Libraries basically um, needed caretakers back when they were built. You know, for various reasons, they would you know take care of different aspects of the physical infrastructure of the library, and then they would live there with their families. So and they manage these, the ghosts, I assume. That's also the main that, thing. commune with them, <laughs> keep the them from bothering back the patrons. Up after the poltergeist. Yes. So, um, and one of the things that they, you know, talk about doing is, they, you know, they, they kept the coal heaters going, they did all these different things. But then when coal furnace, furnaces started getting upgraded, and then it kind of started this chain reaction of these custodian families kind of, you know, retiring, getting older, and then the apartments being emptied, and then... And then it says the ideal of living in a library disappeared. I'm like, I don't know how that's even ever possible. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, and then they kind of went through this era of just being gradually absorbed into various uses that, um, that really didn't take it. I mean, it was, they would run like ventilation through some of them. So you see this kind of picture of a, you know, this really interesting, amazing old space that's just kind of, you know, has random uh, bits of, of, ductwork running through it because they just needed to needed to do it and so and then they, so they weren't really very intentional with how that space was used for a long time and now they're kind of going back through and um they kind of be, they became a novelty and now they're actually being questioned of just like why are we still allowing these things to just exist 
it almost is, it says it's almost become like an embarrassment for some of the libraries of being like, you know, we have these spaces that are no longer explainable in terms of their use or function, although they are part of the heritage of the building of how that was, you know, originally, you know, used. And there's something very beautiful. I mean, there was, there were a few lines that were just like stunning to me. There, um, they, just the stuff that they found in these places. And um, one of them, it says uh, they, that some of the stuff that they found was a, a Polaroid of a Christmas tree and a, a pirate themed card addressed to David J from William J that reads, you're a real treasure to me. And there's just these things that like give you this glimpse into life that are in and of themselves, like the story, the fact that this article exists and that I was able to read it and that, you know, that those things exist. There's, there's something of richness that comes from that, that it's interesting to see. And, but I get it if you were a library, you know, administrator that, you know, they're talking about like, it's, it's, it, it's starting to get, we have, we can't justify having these as just ex in existence. We need to use them for program space or we need to use these in these different ways. And so, yeah, I think this kind of represented that tension a little bit to me of just, um, you know, like how we long, I think sometimes we long for things that connect us to things from the past that we, that we feel like have either story or substance or, you know, or intrigue, and yet also the need to continue to to move forward and to to create new things well, and within I, those spaces. I think it's interesting that we associate that that change so closely with loss, and um, how there are these very visual representations of what happens when you do change and how you do lose, and that you lose that contact, you lose that kind of um, perspective, and it was. It was interesting. I um, in the Atlantic, uh, there was a particularly interesting article that came out about a guy who had been a proctor for the ACT for the last fifty-three years. Wow. And this um, is not the same dream yeah. as the catacombs living in the library. He's a this wild guy. Kind of the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> no. But it, it, <laughs> not, not living the dream. Swinging. But like to the other to side. Him, I didn't want to. No, but it, it, it's interesting because to him it was. Uh, it started out, and they, they asked him, you know, how how did you start doing this and blah, 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 and just getting the background. And he said and it started out with just wanting a couple bucks, you know, extra so I could be able to, you know, go out to dinner with my wife and, and stuff like that. But then as he started doing it, it, it was interesting as he would talk about how he took his responsibility as a proctor of the SAT, um, how serious that was for him and how – he had these really strong ideas of what the SAT meant, and he, he, you know, kind of made a, a, a connection of this is a common experience that every educated person mm -hmm. in America has, and while we all come from different high schools with varied um, qualities and whatnot, we have this one moment to have a benchmark for all of us, and this is a rite of passage in a way but also something that is extremely valuable. And uh, they, they talked about how um, the test had evolved over the years and, you know, the introduction of the essay portion, for example, and how he uh, kind of felt about the SAT changing and people that are proposing that we don't even have the SAT. And it was interesting because he had a very similar type of sentiment to kind of what you were talking about with the, the apartment where it's just like, I can't really imagine doing that just because yes times have changed but that doesn't mean that we lose the value of what used to be and we can be able to draw 
um, you know, conclusions based on that. And it was just really interesting because I don't think that anybody has that relationship with this test, except for maybe <laughs> Kirsten. <laughs> you know, but like it's but it's interesting because like this guy, like he has a, he developed this emotional attachment to, you know, doing this test correctly. And, um, you know, he, he would then associate that with, it was interesting. He, he said, I'm very proud of uh, some of my former students. I watch them on television regularly. Nash Carter is the secretary of defense. I taught him in government. And he just like kind of was, was like going on about like how, you know, we're not talking about the test anymore at all, you know, but it's, it's this experience of like what his life meant. And that was really interesting to me that we he was a, he was making these conclusions based off of this one touch point, but really it wasn't that touch point. It was everything that was the, the value of education to him. And and it's interesting to see as those things are changing, you know, I think that there's some pretty compelling arguments to, you know, to do away with standardized testing or at least change it in, in big ways. But it is interesting to see at the perspective of somebody that says, no, like, the, you know, this means more than that. And, you know, the, it becomes an artifact of our society and of anybody who pursues an education. The, you know, you have to go through this and it's very regimented and it is very similar. And how, you know, changing that somehow we lose that type of Well, uh, going back experience. to Joy's article about the um, just the practices that have made this uh, business more effective for retaining um, working moms. I think there's something, there's a thread that's kind of reemerging from one of a few of our early episodes, I think, of this idea of, I think we talked about it once that millennials now are owning, buying like everything, like cars, houses at a crazy lower degree like at a crazy lower rate than any generation before them to, to the point that it's like so such a precipitous drop off that there are, you know, there's a lot of discussion of how those industries even adapt to the, to those changing. And can I just mention tides. really quickly that the article and the company enjoys articles, Patagonia that yeah. itself is on a campaign to have their, to fix clothing rather than buy new clothing. Yeah, so that is actually, anyway, no, that's interesting too. But the, this idea of, you know, we kind of had these things in society that represented a lot more than that. So like represented attitudes, represented shared experiences, represented all of this Motherhood. stuff, that, all these different things that go into something that we then kind of crystallized practices in our society that were tied to things that I, I think there's a really interesting uh, phenomenon afoot. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a couple of articles that um, kind of touch on that as well. Brian, you had the article from, there were actually two articles from MindShift, the KQED mm-hmm. um, site with um, why don't teachers get taught how to deal with mental illness? Like, why is that not mm-hmm. part of their curriculum? And then the whole idea that we have elementary and junior high and definitely high schools teaching this very regimented, teaching at this regimented master schedule style mm-hmm. when like literally no part of your life, confi- you know, abides to that, even college which we're supposedly, you know, preparing these kids to go into. I mean, I remember myself who I was a relatively intelligent uh, teenager and I remember just being like throttled against the wall, the figurative wall when I got to college because I'm like, I I had complete freedom and I was in complete control of my schedule and I was like, great, I want to hang out in my dorm room with my friends all the time and I knew better, but like I had never been given that kind of freedom before that point, 
And so giving small doses, I mean, we, when I, when we talk to our kids, one of the themes that we say is like, we're helping you become grownups and we can't do that all at once. So at 10, you're not going to get all the lessons that you're supposed to learn at 18, but like slowly, but surely we need to introduce concepts of how to live. And I think it's interesting that it's just now that we're like, hmm, maybe the period schedule in co- in high schools is not conducive to mm. well, setting people up for success and later on in life. And what was really interesting about that article was the level of discomfort that educators have of going away from that. And, you know, how um, one of the, the um, educators that was actually advocating changing it uh, says how he he admitted how sloppy it was. He said, like, it is really sloppy, but so is life. Mm-hmm. And so, but the problem is, is when you have somebody that's doing this on a day-to-day basis, you know, they, they crave that, you know, kind of organization. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, it's just interesting to me though, despite having um, quite a bit of research indicating the, the importance of instilling self motivated behaviors and especially when it comes to education despite all of that like we have this artifact of you know well I did this and my parents did this and my grandparents did this and quite frankly it's like it's been it's been such a strong strain through all of our collective educational experiences that going outside of that demands us to be very sloppy and you know it's it's just interesting to see how uncomfortable well, and for how, a period of time until that coalesces into a new way of understanding it because I think that that's the you know there's the chaos well, of something I disagree apart I then, think there's actually some fields of, of profession that are just stuck in a way of doing things teaching is unfortunately one of them and I've I mean I've heard teachers complain like we're going to go to a more project-based learning and they're like no I don't want to <laughs> like I teach according to the curriculum that I've always taught to and it works, and this is how we do it. And you're like, but we live well, in a Well, and I think society. some of that is coming from, I mean, if you if you feel like there's an environment that actually genuinely supports you in approaching, but if you if you aren't, if you don't feel that trust in yeah. the, you know, the way that things are set up to Hashtag be able to actually, <laughs> to be able to actually take on that exploratory perspective with your yeah. students, I think that's a, a, an interesting thing. But, but it's the same thing with the mental illness yeah. thing. So could I, I'll, I'll make a very, very statement, maybe the first time ever on this podcast from my actual realm of expertise, because <laughs> I've made master schedules <laughs> and for some fairly experimental schools. So I've done it and, and we've changed them from year to year with, in collaboration with teachers. And so we had all these discussions and it was fascinating. Everything you've just said is very relevant. You have to play with messiness. You have to play with predictability. Kids don't want, kids need predictability too. So it's not just so simple as like, oh, kids want to be free. They actually don't. They want to know what's happening most of the time. But I think the, I love that article too that Brian posted with the theme that you proposed, Amy, because I think that one of the, one of the most ephemeral artifacts from this era of education is going to be the master <laughs> schedule. And it is actually where you can see the entire, process of the school and the values that they've put on things, including like what they've budgeted for. And in fact, that's the main thing. I think a lot of the pressure comes from the fact that you want to be able to be messy and free, but that's expensive. (laughs) What you really need to do if you're running a school is to make sure that at any minute of the day, every professional has 25 kids assigned to them. And it's so, it's such a stupid 
just top level consideration when we're we have all these noble ideas of our own exploration in this podcast, all the things we want to find out about and work on and all the projects and things like that. When um, you'll see in those master schedules that the dominating factor is just that economic one usually, and it trumps everything else. So it would be, I think if we were to look back, I think in the future when warp drive has been invented and we're not using any money anymore, mm-hmm. we'll look at, we'll just laugh at how silly we were <laughs> well, and, to have let that govern these big decisions. Well, and that, that gets to an article that I uh, also found. Uh, in About the, the warp drive? Um, <laughs> no. Because I've, I've been looking into that. I'm hoping <laughs> it's coming around, but. They're still writing that one, oh. um, but in Atlantic, there um, there was an article that the title of is "Living in an Extreme Meritocracy is Exhausting," and it's interesting to me uh, to kind of delve into this because we have gone and gone gone into a society where we have analytics on everything, and we can be able to optimize things very efficiently and very well, and you know create algorithms that support you know said um, you know desired result. And uh, what was interesting about this article that it goes into is like the actual term meritocracy was um, made in the 1950s and it was in uh, an author was writing about it, about this dystopian uh, society where there was um, this group of talented haves that, you know, were able to, you know, have everything work for them while the the have nots were actually all blaming themselves um, because and they all felt like they deserved what they got. And how it was kind of a terrible, th- you know, situation. But now we have, you know, this situation where we have whether that be economic um, motivations, you know, like you were talking about with the schools, as far as like, you know, maximizing uh, the the economic uh, variables, or be that you know job performance or what whatever. And the the argument in the article was that. If the more that we are going into that, it's easier because it's taking out of the hands of human beings to make judgments because we can be able to just look at, okay, here's a number that's based off of the real work that you did, and it is accurate. But yet there's because we don't have any human element into it, it's taking out what actually makes society worth living in. And it, it's not it takes out all the equalitarian aspects of anything because it by nature is not. And it was just really interesting to me to kind of think about how um, that's getting rid of a lot of these cultural artifacts that um, are extremely, like, at least we say that they're extremely important. And you know, when we're talking about schools, we're, we're talking about it is so important to be able to, you know, create critical thought and to have, you know, these kind of soft skills that we always talk about on this podcast. But like you said, they're not really fitting into that algorithm. And, you know, the, the the different merits that were and the algorithms that we've been able to construct, whether that be, you know, double scores or, you know, this, that or the other. Yeah. It's just like, oh, well, that's not working, you know, because, yeah. you know, this this number is going down. And because this number is going down, that's bad. So and so think, I'm going to replace that. Think about that. the artifacts that a school does and could produce, like, of learning. They're amazing. Like, kids mm-hmm. produce amazing stuff all day long. But I, as you're talking about the meritocracy, the artifact that we're going to leave most of right now is data. Mm-hmm. And it's data that's selected on these lines that reveal our priorities. Well, it's, it's, it's what kills <laughs> arts programs, for example, yeah. because it's so difficult to be able to come up with that number that it's just like, yeah, we're going to cut that because we can't really make an argument for it based off of this value system we have. Which I think is fascinating when it re- starts to relate. And I'm the, 
it starts to relate to the way that we create physical spaces that house these kinds of experiences or physical elements or tools or budgets or whatever the infrastructure is that surrounds these kind of experiences. I think it's, I think there's a really fascinating relationship and I think we've seen a little bit of it. I mean, I, the example that comes to mind is obviously like Pam Moran and, and um, uh, Albemarle school district where they, I mean, they really have started to radically kind of question, well, I guess I shouldn't say radically, to awesomely <laughs> question. Radical the and way, awesome can be <laughs> True. They can both they exist together. They don't have to together. be mutually Remember the 80s? Sometimes they're even, uh, yeah. In the 80s, by each we, other. we used them. <laughs> California surf speak radical. But yeah, but the, um, the way that they use the physical spaces of their schools and the way that they have kids have a voice in that process and experiment and use it as an experimental space, it's interesting how that has how it seemed in observing from the outside that that goes really hand in hand with, you know, some of the questioning of process also is reflected in, um, in the way that you're willing to question the, the environment and the way that you use the environment around you. And I think that this is, so this um, article in Aeon um, or Eon, have we ever decided exactly? We, I think I say Aeon, you guys say Eon. I say Aeon. Okay. Well, I call it, uh, I call it, <laughs> I call it potato. It's <laughs> one of our go-tos and we got to get this straight. Um, but there's so many good things always, but, um, there was uh, buck to the future this week was an article that I loved. Cause I have a, uh, a very soft spot in my heart for Buckminster Fuller. And this was kind of a retrospective on, which is really interesting. Cause if you think about artifacts of the last hundred years, you know, he was a person and a thinker that has very tangible, distinctive, recognizable, physical artifacts of his thought and, you know, geodesic, geodesic domes and these different things that like are very, you know, associated with the, his way of thinking about things. And I have always just kind of been a, you know, a fan and it was interesting to read this and, you know, become even more, you know, admiring of some of the things and the ways that he approached things. I love that he um, called himself a, a comprehensive anticipatory design scientist. I was like, yeah, I, I, I like that. Um, I don't know. There's a little bit of, there's simultaneously imagination and hubris in that. And it's, I think that's kind of great. But the thing that kind of tying to what you were uh, saying, Brian, of he had, uh, he had obviously had critics of the way that he approached things because his approach was <clears throat> technology and design can answer all of the needs that humans have, which isn't a beautiful way of looking at it because then you develop more. Uh, I think that the thought and the intent that you put into designing said things is um, more meaningful, but there, one of his uh, critics was a sociologist, Lewis Mumford, and he says he longed for a more organic humanism. And they kind of proposed these contrasting versions of the future that in, uh, in, 1968 Horizon Magazine had this article entitled, Which Guide to the Promised Land, Fuller or Mumford? Because <laughs> that's Pick pretty funny. One. It's one of, Obviously it's one of the two. Won. It's one of the two. But um, now it, Fuller won because of Elon Musk this week. This is probably why he's in the news because we're going to build these on Mars now, right? <laughs> well, and I think that so this, so this Lewis Mumford guy. Um, it's, Let him be forgotten forever. This quote is, um, it goes in line with like uh, what you were saying of, you know, data and how we, but the, if the goal of human history is a uniform type of man, reproducing at a uniform rate in a uniform environment, kept at a constant temperature, pressure and humidity, like a uniformly lifeless existence with his uniform physical needs satisfied by uniform goods, most of the problems of human development would disappear. Only one problem would remain. 
why should anyone, even a computer, bother to keep this kind of creature alive? <laughs> it's like the the tunic, the tunic wearing future that every single nineteen sixties and seventies hey. movie. I know. I know you love I it. I dream of the tunic, but that doesn't mean that I'm having all of my other functions <laughs> uniformed in a uniform rate. But I, I think that's the interesting aspect of it is just realizing that, like, there are some things that we can use data and use the efficiencies that can be gained through that to, you know, to understand and to utilize resources more effectively. And yet the things, I mean, it's kind of, the, it's the library apartments again. It's just like there's something about the way that our human imagination is kindled and actually drives us to want to make progress or to want to explore that isn't answered by that. And I think it's an interesting contrast. So I think I found the nexus of this entire conversation from my own experience. And, you know, it, it comes partly from, you know, the reference of the Mars Project with Elon Musk and um, the space program in general and how... I have a lot of nostalgia for, you know, the actual space shuttle program and was devastated when they just decided to discontinue it just because of what it meant to me and how data-driven that whole venture really is. So just kind of thinking about how, you know, for at least me and I would argue many people, the highest achievement that man has ever able, been able to create has up to this point been space travel and how that entire thing is so data-driven I mean, by its very nature, it has to be. But at the same time, it is simultaneously completely unknown. And it's it's doing things that have no guarantees. And we don't really know how things are going to work out. And it's very unpredictable. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting um, thing to think about. And how we, a lot of times we, there is definitely some value in, you know, what we observe and we observe that through the collection of data, but it's important, I think, for us to be able to continue to, um, explore the things that are unpredictable based off of that information instead of just replicating what we already know is going to happen. Well, and I, I, it's interesting because obviously, you know, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of space, but I'm kind of, I, there's this interesting aspect and this is a fairly recent you know, within the last few years, thought process for me of, you know, in our, in our focus on these things that we have to, you know, reaching out into that beyond and unknown in these really kind of, um, kind of what, what, what space exploration would entail. Are we missing some of the things that are right in front of us that are actually the messy part of, that are also equally, equally unknown. And, and I do think, cause I think that the way that we attach story and the way that we attach our aspirations to things that are beyond ourselves and beyond our environment, this is a tangent and I'm going to get off it. I promise. But like, I, I want, it's going to suck if like the artifact that we really leave is a freaking burnout planet. But, That's all I'm going to say. Well, <laughs> well, like, let me, let me kind of go back to that because, because I do think that it's interesting um, that you bring that up because you look at the things that have come out of, you know, this, space exploration program and seeing how they're the byproducts of that have really enhanced, you know, the quality of life in things that are completely unrelated. And, you know, just the, the very active investment on what is, you know, kind of on that leading edge, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it is interesting to me to like, a lot of the things that can actually save this planet might be the things that are the byproducts of tr trying to leave it. And, 
And so it's just that that to me is really interesting. Yeah, it's a and, definitely interesting. And it's a it's a very nexus crazy thing to think about of how um which way forward, Mumford yeah. or Fuller? <laughs> Honestly, uh Matt ruined me because he made me read he didn't make me, but I read Seven Eves and now like everything that you're saying, I'm like, no, we should totally go forward with the whole space thing because if something awful happens and we need to do it, then we need we need an escape hatch. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, we need a we need to attach an asteroid to the International Space Station post haste. Now or else right we're now. all gonna die. <laughs> but but I guess here's and I and maybe this is again, I'm probably getting in the weeds here, but I, I, I guess the question and I and this tying to the the question of just like what, what, what the artifacts that we actually, what are the the things that we use and the attitudes with which we use them, whether they're physical objects or attitudes or or anything else that are going to, to remain after we've, you know. Well, I think going to your question about the space station or the space exploration isn't maybe the iconic artifact of space exploration so far, the blue marble photo of the earth. Mm. And that's had a huge effect on wow, people's really... view of what the earth is as a home, as a place where it fits in the galaxy and all those kinds of things. I mean, I don't think, I don't think we appreciate what it was like to live in the world before mm. you had those kinds of views. So, well, so I've been thinking as we've been talking about artifacts and reinventing, and um, I was looking for an article uh, that I read recently and I couldn't find it, but it was about how like, is the open workspace actually such a good idea? Like, have we like lost productivity? Have we lost connection with other people because we just go inside of headphones and we work so hard to kind of create pretend cubicles and that sort of thing. But in looking for that article, cubicles of the mind, exactly. <laughs> um, in looking for that article, I found this amazing article on uh, an amazing website called Composites Manufacturing Magazine, which <laughs> that does I sound awesome. Sense. Yeah, that you read sounds, that too, Joy. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Oh, we're touching fingers across <laughs> the table. <laughs> um, but it was about how MIT and Google created private drop-down meeting spaces with fiberglass, and I highly recommend looking at these amazing space pods. But it was from that problem, like we've got this open workspace. We love it. It's pretty. We need to work. We need a conference room. <laughs> like, like we need to talk privately about certain things. We need to have a discussion and not do these. And so they're just like, let's let's turn that that concept upside down and create these amazing, cool um, structures to so that we can kind of reinvent an artifact that we considered an artifact, but is actually a necessity in the office. Like you need to have private spaces to be able to talk and meet and that sort of thing. So they're like, let's rethink how that works. Well, and even in such a seemingly, I mean, that is a big way because of the, like the way that we work and all those kind of things. But that life cycle is speeding up so fast to where we can kind of now start to see it come back around and reincorporate itself. And I, I, I think that there's something really beautiful and I don't know that we'll put a final point on it today. Um, cause it, it's a, it feels pretty big, but this idea of, I mean, I love, I think that's such a beautiful image that like we had to, you know, we had to push ourselves uh, almost literally physically away from our planet so that we could actually turn around and have the perspective of yeah. what that actually is and what that means and change and gain increased perspective as to what it is that we actually are and care about. Um, and also a little bit of that same thing of just like, oh, by pushing and learning in this way, we've learned what we want to, you know, bring back in and how we want to continue to 
develop that. I think that that's a really, um, again, it's interesting that we have that capability now because we're not limited as much by as many things, I think, whether that's geography, whether that's, you know, just social norms, whether that's, you know, all these different things have now arisen to where we can really be a little bit more intentional, hopefully, about the ways, about the things that we really want and have the things, whether they're physical or, um, or process that we surround ourselves with be more driven by that intent. And I think that that's the interesting thing, kind of going back to the book, Mr. Fuller article. Um, I think that's where, you know, Mumford and, and Fuller probably had some more overlap than they, than they thought was that I think that their desires were actually pretty, pretty similar but their their ideas of how humanity could get itself there um, was maybe a little bit different because a lot of um, and I won't find, I don't know what the exact quote is but essentially the way that Buckminster Fuller looked at it and I mean a lot of futurists throughout history <laughs> futurists throughout history should be a, um, a band <laughs> at least at least or at least a Jimmy Fallon segment yeah you know <laughs> totally but this I mean he he was like well all of these efficiencies that are gained will free humans up to do the things that they really want to do. But that's that interesting entanglement of, but how do we not lose what that is along the way? And I think that that's something that we, excuse me, sorry for the cracking voice, but that we, um, we find ourselves grappling with quite a bit. And I think, and never with more seeming meaning and stakes than when we consider our kids. And, you know, I, I, exactly what what you were saying, Brian, when we can't show as quickly in a data-driven way the benefit of an arts program as we can, you know, something else, and that goes by the wayside because of that. I think those are interesting questions and, and problems that we're having to to answer in new ways. So hopefully we'll leave plenty, plenty more high school art project artifacts. <laughs> For people to enjoy along the way. I have a few pieces of kid art in my house, a few thousand, if anybody wants some (laughs) artifacts of kid art. Okay, cool. I keep them in boxes as well, and I don't know why. Well, and it's (laughs) it's actually, there's a little bit of a life cycle. My mom actually just gave me all of the, all of my own artifacts, I guess one could say. And while it is enjoyable and amusing to go through it, it's funny that one, she was like, yeah, you take this now. (laughs) And two... It was like me looking through it. I'm like, there's maybe two or three things in here that's worth keeping. I, I seriously, I have, and I'm not kidding. We're talking about personal artifacts. I have every note that I pass between classes, between sixth and eighth grade. Wow. That's that, actually kind of priceless. I know. And I've kept them and I can't bring myself to look at them yet because I feel like it's like a, it's like an artifact time capsule thing it's that like I have to save. It's like a Kmart mixtape. Yeah. Tune in for next week's podcast, which will be based entirely on Joy's <laughs> notes. Notes of Joy. <laughs> Thanks for wandering this week, guys. <laughs> Thanks for being a part of the wandering this week. See where it takes us next week by signing up for our weekly episode newsletter at happywandererpodcast.com. Let us know where the wandering takes you by chatting with us on Twitter at the underscore wonderment. Start the exploring with your kids with creative activities on these topics at thewonderment.com. And follow us to get mini episodes throughout the week on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Dogcatcher, and other top podcasting sites. See you out there. Thank you.